Ronald here and I'm here today with a wonderful guest uh, that has made a huge contribution to Toronto's new amendments to their zoning bylaw which is now allowing multiplexes throughout Ontario. Um, so I'm here today with Michael Piper. He is actually the Director of Urban Design at the University of Toronto. So welcome Michael. You are actually doing a lot of work with the City of Toronto, but you're also a professor at the University of Toronto School of Cities. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what do you do at the university? Uh, okay, thanks, Ron. Um, yes, I'm a professor at actually at the Daniels Faculty of Architecture, Landscape, and Design, and so Whoa. the yeah, no, it's <laughs> break messy. it down, break it down. It's messy, <laughs> but no. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of my official title, okay, assistant awesome. professor there, and I'm the director of the Master of Urban Design program, as as you mentioned, and okay. so urban design looks at things like policy, built form. Uh, how, you know, how housing is made and, and so kind of a bla uh, somewhere in between architecture and urban planning. Mm -hmm. So that's maybe a little bit about where I'm coming from. Oh, no, absolutely. Urban planning, urban design, built form. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that the new multiplex zoning bylaw encompasses all of those sort of phrases that you throw, all those, that glossary of terms. And there's <laughs> a lot more that comes with it, like the missing middle, um, you know, citizen developers and stuff like that. But before we dive into some of those things, I, I want to I talk about your contribution to this multiplex zoning bylaw because you had an instrumental role in it, you and your team, and you have coordinated that. So uh, what, what exactly was your role? So uh, at the U of T, I started a, a, a lab, you'd call it, mm -hmm. um, and we do research about um, the relationship between uh, built form or buildings and, and policy. Mm. And so we started a project called Rehousing in collaboration with LGA mm. Architectural Partners. Yeah. Um, and with that project, Rehousing, we've been studying um, a bunch of different types of homes in Toronto and how you can convert them to multiplexes. So the city, and we've been kind of in collaboration and chatting with them through the School of Cities, as you had noted. Yeah. Um, uh, they've been focusing mostly on how to convert multiplexes in the downtown. Um, we've been researching how to convert multiplexes across the whole region of Toronto, so like that's the right. suburban areas and all mm. that sort of stuff. And that's where we kind of uh, contributed to what they're doing is by is adding some knowledge about these other kind of areas of the city outside of downtown Toronto. No, absolutely. And, and I, I like that because now, because, you know, we, we have a, we have a, not a looming, we have an, a pending, like not even a pending, an happening yeah. crisis right now. Yeah. And what is actually happening is that people don't have housing options yeah right yeah. so that was the main focus of the study the ehan right uh, expanding uh, was it expanding housing option in, in, in neighborhoods, neighborhoods yeah right so that was the toronto study so you contributed to that through the rehousing so i want to talk a little bit about that because that was such an important um, study and that resource is such important. Even I spent some time <laughs> on that website and hence the reason why I thought it was so important to connect with you. So talk about a little bit about some of the housing types that you guys looked at. So let's see. Um, and I know it's a lot. No, <laughs> so no, no. Lot. We, it, we did look at a lot, mm -hmm. but basically what Ehan, the Ehan group, Expanding Housing yeah. Options in Neighborhoods, they, yeah. they contacted us and they wanted to figure out um, what the implications for zoning policy would be if you thought more broadly about different types of house across the region, mm -hmm. uh, different types of houses across the region. Yes. So 
you know, we did look at one of the downtown types, what we might call like a, um, a pre-war semi-detached or an yeah. interwar semi. A mm -hmm. lot of folks are familiar with that. Yeah. We looked at like the post-war bungalow as an example. And then there's the area further outside of Toronto, like, you know, closer to Steeles uh, at, the, at the fringe of, of the city itself that we're calling kind of the metro burb generations. Yeah. So we mm -hmm. came up with this terminology to describe different generations or types of homes. And we tested out again, like if you were to build a multiplex, a new build for the purposes of the city of Toronto mm -hmm. um, on that lot, what kind of, what are the problems with existing zoning and what would need to change to not prevent that from happening? Yeah. Um, so I think you were asking about the housing types. I don't the know housing if, types. I, if I yeah, covered no, that absolutely. enough. Yeah. So no, you, you can definitely jump into that. And the reason why I want to speak about the housing types, because as a, as a BCI designer, we work with a lot of clients that are actually doing a fair bit of conversions. Uh, now that multiplexes are allowed, we'll be getting a ton load of inquiries. Yeah. So we're now looking at bungalows, where uh, those post-war bungalows, which yeah, seem yeah, to be like the, the sweet, most, yeah, yeah. Sweet spot, the most yeah, yeah. popular. Um, but you know, when you look at some of the work that needs to go into converting a bungalow into a multiplex, it's I believe is significantly more. So well, what are your thoughts in terms of the types and how? what are some of the complexities that go into converting them? Yeah, I mean, the, one of the reasons we thought it was important to look at the different types of homes across yeah. the city is mm -hmm. that different kinds of homes offer different possibilities for creating additional units. That's right. Like in the downtown, the ceiling height's pretty low for the basement, so mm -hmm. it's harder to create a basement suite. Bungalows have good ceiling height. There's mm -hmm. always usually a second entrance. <laughs> To the basement, it makes it pretty easy to make a basement suite. Mm -hmm. Also, the lots are really big, so you can you can do an attached accessory unit to a bungalow or a detached right. garden suite. Um, so that's kind of what the the post-war generation offers: is big lots, low lot coverage, and mm -hmm. a little flexibility. That's why they're so popular, I think. That's right. What's interesting about the metro burb generation or the generation further out is. The buildings are substantially larger than most of the ones in the post-war or the yeah. middle ring in the downtown. Yeah. And you can actually get up to five or six units within some of the post-war, or sorry, some of the metro burb generation building types. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. what that generation offers is the ability to kind of create a multiplex without having to do any exterior construction, which yeah. is like, you know, really valuable. Absolutely. And, you know... You talked about the post-war. You talked about the metro burb. I've actually never even heard that word. You, I know, know, you guys of, made that word up, right? We didn't make it up, but like <laughs> no. we, we, you know, it sort of bubbles in the academic circle, which yeah. you know okay. we borrowed it. And yeah. no, that's good. That's but, good. But one, one of the so what you're saying, like there are obviously pros and cons for every yeah, type, every type yeah. of building. So we're talking about the 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 post post-war bungalow. Those are the most common, I think, around. Mm. Uh, they have larger lots, they have higher ceilings, uh, height in the basement, mm. but of course, in order to add a, a multiplex there, an addition is absolutely necessary, yeah. whether you're going vertical or you're going horizontal, depending on the size of the lot. But when you're looking at, let's say, I think you, you'd call this an interwar, like interwar yeah, row, row the houses, older ones. Or, yeah. the older ones. So those are actually, uh, they, they have shorter basement, basement. heights. Right, because that time no one was living in basements, and there wasn't any particular type of building code that would restrict those low headrooms. But also, they have two and two and a half stories. Yeah. So those are, in in my opinion, somewhat less for constructing. Maybe some underpinning, maybe just replacing a roof. So, what are your thoughts on 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 in terms of uh, on terms of what are some of the hurdles that you can encounter on some of those for that for the older for, generation? For the older generation. Yeah, yeah. I mean. The thing is, is that 
most of downtown has been allowing multiplexes for mm -hmm. a while already. So yeah. therefore, you're seeing a lot of these types of homes being converted to a duplex or a triplex, even if the basement isn't, isn't being used. Um, and part of that's because they're set up in a really straightforward way. Anyone who's you know, been inside one of these buildings, know what they look like on the ground floor. There's a stair on the side. On the other side, there's living space. <laughs> on the top floor, the stairs on the same side, and the bedrooms are on the other side. So it's a really straightforward layout, and it makes it possible to turn it into flats. So yeah. a ground floor unit, mm -hmm. a second floor unit. Maybe you can do an addition to the third floor and the same kind of organization. So that's been really common in downtown, and a lot of these buildings have already been uh, converted. So that's what wow. you know, they have to offer. Well, guys, that's just a teaser into what's to come next. Um, right now, we're going to jump into our Riverside conversation. In our Riverside conversation, we're going to just explore a little bit about Michael and who he is as a person, why does he chose the particular field that he's in. So, Michael, I have a question for you, my friend. Why did you choose architecture as a field of study? I didn't choose architecture. I chose <laughs> biology. Architecture chose you? Ah. Uh. <laughs> I didn't think I was artistic enough. Yeah. And, uh, and then I noticed that everyone in the architecture program when I was in college and uh, in this, I'm from Atlanta and Georgia Tech, mm -hmm. and everyone's using parallel bars and straight edges. And I was like, I can do that. So I, I started, <laughs> you know, that, that's, uh, I, I, I always, so to so be the curiosity clear, came. Yeah, the curiosity came. Yeah. I've uh -huh. always loved uh, thinking systematically about things, which is why I started studying biology. Yeah. And it's actually why I like doing urban design mm. as a, a design practice. It's not about making a single building. It's mm -hmm. about thinking systematically about the built environment. Yes, yes, yes. So that rehousing project is it's not just about, oh, here's a multiplex. That's interesting. But it's about how can we convert systematically the standard types of homes we have in our city into multiplexes. Well, I guess it goes without saying, but I must ask. Why academia? Oh, that's another great question. <laughs> I didn't start with academia. Actually, um, I had always wanted to get into academia, yeah. but I didn't want to start teaching or being a professor right after grad school because yeah. I thought it would be important if I was going to be in academia that I knew what was going on in the world. So I spent about 10, 12 years working in private practice for private development, frankly, for real estate mm -hmm. developers, yeah. learning how that works, mm -hmm. learning the language, learning what we as designers can contribute to real estate and not just real estate, but mm -hmm. equitable real estate. That's, That's something right. I care a lot about um, in a positive way. And so with that experience, then I came back to academia. And so mm -hmm. projects mm -hmm. like rehousing are an effort to bring uh, sort of real life issues, real world problems into the context of academia and to think about it critically in that space. Wow, that's that's an amazing response, by the way. If you guys haven't taken a look at Rehousing, that's rehousing.ca, you need to check it out. It's an amazing website put together, very organized. Just as Michael just said, he liked to look at things big picture, but also systematically. So that website really lays out how uh, what are some of the properties uh, that can be converted into multiplexes and, 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 and how to go about doing that? And it has a lot of really cool graphics as well. But with that said, I'll ask you this. It seems like you're doing pretty well for yourself and you love what you do. You hang around a lot of students. So what would you tell your younger self? What advice would you give to your younger yeah, self? Yeah, that's a... Uh, I, I knew this was coming and I didn't prepare a good answer. Okay, let me think. Um, the, the big thing, actually, mm -hmm. I'd say the big thing is, um, when I was younger, mm -hmm. I was kind of seeking out 
problems to solve um, mm -hmm. when in fact there's problems kind of right in front of you all the time. And as mm -hmm. a professor, one of, you know, or as an academic, one of our jobs is to offer our time that's afforded to us by having the privilege of, of, of being a professor mm -hmm. to offer our time to what's going on in the world and to, uh, and to try to address issues, address problems. And I guess this is what I would, what I'm trying to say is I didn't need to invent problems there. They're just right there. And so yeah. paying attention to policy, like what's going on with the city, um, what's happening with kind of, uh, you know, changes in how planning works and how designers can contribute to that discussion. So I, I wish I had maybe done that a little bit earlier. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. Uh, and, and really having that point of view now, you know, I mean, obviously, you you are looking at current problems hence the reason yeah, why that's the, yeah. yeah so <laughs> yeah. kind of on yeah, the flip yeah. side of that now you're actually doing now, that now so i've learned my lesson <laughs> i'm like oh i, I could just actually deal with things so, yeah. so you know the, you mentioned that you you kind of dropped a word in there like yeah. equitable real estate i think yeah, you said. yeah and uh, and i guess that is obviously one of the problems right like social social real estate equitable real estate like so explain what that is and how do you how do you kind of facilitate the uh, that that process yeah i mean so at the end of the day we have a way that we build in the city we build housing through the market mm -hmm. um it's and it's through real estate and development and and that's what we have and whether i like it or not isn't the question it's a question of what we want that market to deliver for us mm -hmm. and one of the things that i want the market to deliver is more affordable housing i'm mm -hmm. i'm not gonna say how old <laughs> i am but like i'm I would have liked to have purchased a home a lot sooner. And I know lots of folks who would like to purchase a home a lot sooner or now in their lives, folks who wish their rent were lower. And the question is, how do we get there? And it's not by, I think, saying we don't need to have a market, but mm -hmm. how do we make that market work better for more people? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean by equitable, offering opportunities for people of different backgrounds, economically, racially, to access the market that maybe they are precluded from. Absolutely. And I, I oftentimes say that, you know, if you're welcoming a lot of people into Canada and a lot of those people are coming to Toronto, you got to welcome these people with uh, housing options. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's really unfair to tell someone to come to your come home to and, and basically <laughs> you give them nothing to drink. Yeah, yeah, right. So right. <laughs> if you're going to invite them, you better give them. Been, yeah, at least I give like them housing. Right. But, but the reality is, yeah. is that that's something yeah. that Toronto struggled with for years. Right. So my question is, do you think the multiplex zoning bylaw has gone far enough? Uh, I mean, you know, the, the critical side of me always knows there's something more, um, but it's been such a long, I think, struggle to actually get this through. Mm -hmm. I mean, discussions for however long that have been squashed by folks who didn't want it to happen. So right now at the heels of its passage, I'm just very happy about that. Now, to the point about going further, I mm -hmm. think it's not about liberalizing zoning more, although, mm -hmm. yes, yeah, six or five units would be great. Yeah. But I think what needs to be in place is actually incentives, structures, uh, system, systems, and processes that enable, I'd say, again, a broader spectrum of citizens to access uh, affordable rental and or affordable ownership. I really like that. So let, let's talk about let's talk about those three things: incentives, systems, and I believe you said accessibility, mm. right? So what what are some of the incentives you think that maybe could done be done from a I don't know city, provincial, uh, federal level like that can support this type of housing? So a lot of folks uh, in the planning world, and I mean people that I'm working with and have had conversation with. Mm -hmm 
think that cities and, and, and the province should provide um, either you know, low or no interest loans and or mm-hmm. um, investment directly into um, someone's mortgage. Um, let me think about it another way. Um, mm-hmm. or let me try to speak about it another way. In California, a mm-hmm. while back, they were trying to encourage the state and, and municipalities were trying to encourage folks to uh, to use solar panels. And so what they did is that the city would uh, pay for your solar panels, and you would pay back over 15 years with the mm-hmm. the, the the revenue generated from the the energy you were generating on site. And it, it worked out pretty well, almost too well. In fact, the grid in California. Um, <laughs> ended up having to, well, they, they had a shortfall. So they had a big budget. I'm, I'm going down a rabbit hole. No, no, I, I, but you I, know what I'm saying, yes, right? Yes, 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 go on. No. So the same idea, I think, could work uh, mm-hmm. for the purposes of generating extra units in home. Extra units, new units would generate income. Some of that goes to the homeowner. Some of it could go to pay back a low-interest loan that the city or the province is providing, and thereby enabling folks who maybe are just on the edge of being mm-hmm. able to afford to do these kinds of uh, additions or um, conversions yeah. to actually make them happen. No, absolutely. And, and you know, I was kind of dovetailing off of that. Some of, some of the things I've heard some, some other sort of financial professionals sort of talking about, we're strategizing about what are some of the incentives. One of the incentives, obviously, can be, you know, being able to finance, because right now I believe CMHC would insure mortgages on five or plus units, right? And, and this is something I think is a, becoming a huge conversation. Why, why don't you expand on that? Let me Sorry, hear your thoughts no, on that. No, I go d- for it. I just, you know, I was just having a conversation with someone and yeah. this is, have we gone far enough? This would be the one issue or the one aspect of why we stopped at four. Yeah. So the multiplex, mm-hmm. the multiplex regulations currently allow mm-hmm. four units per uh, uh, home mm-hmm. in the principal, principal dwelling, building. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, five would qualify them for this uh, insurance by CMHC. So, so why not five? Sorry. I, <laughs> yes, we haven't gone far enough. We need to have five so that folks can get that insurance. Well, well, maybe we don't have five, but maybe the, the incentive or maybe there's a policy yeah. where it does they start from four. Four, yeah. Maybe at least yeah, in yeah. Toronto in some areas, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. frankly, why mm-hmm. not start at three? Because I, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, you know, we're going to see a lot of developers maybe building five units, maybe four units. But mm-hmm. like the average homeowner looking to uh, kind of um, to find a little extra income to pay mm-hmm. off their mortgage, they're yeah. going to be doing one or two units only. So, that's and correct. I think that's actually the level we need to be supporting more is exactly. is that you know the kind of homeowners, the prospective homeowners that are trying to create a little extra income, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. No, absolutely. So I, I agree with you. It would be nice to say on every lot we're moving from a single family. Now we have five dwelling yeah. units, right? Uh, but the tra- chances are that's not going to happen not because gonna. we're working with a lot of quote unquote citizen developers, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So what are some of the systems you think that, uh, that we can put in place to help citizen developers? So uh, one is um, citizen developers, mm-hmm. let's say, are, are folks. Um, well, what that, what, who are well, citizen, so, de- yeah. who are so citizen we, developers? We, first, just so that everyone knows. Um, I mean, I was, it's kind of self-describing, uh, but. I don't, I don't like to brag too much, but I'm going to brag about this. We, we came up with this term a couple yeah. of years ago. Okay. And the reason um, we thought about this is that when you're when you're in the kind of space of multiplex making, you're, you're not talking about, I think, in terms of feasibility, you're not talking about a developer coming in and buying up a lot and making a fiveplex. I mean, yes, mm-hmm. that's going to happen. And, and yes, mm, absolutely, let's support that. Mm-hmm. But I think more um, the really the way we're going to get scale and housing creation in the context of, of low rise neighborhoods mm-hmm. is by enabling non-professionals, homeowners, prospective homeowners 
to create extra units. And these folks, they're not professionals in, in design, development, or, or construction. So, you know, however, they're developers. And mm -hmm. so the term citizen developer is intended to describe a class mm -hmm. of people who are going to be creating housing, but who don't have experience. And this is really important to recognize because these folks, you can't just use the same systems, the same kind of... Um, uh, kind of zoning review, building review processes that we offer to traditional developers. Mm, yeah. We have to create systems of review, finance, and, and design, frankly, that support people who don't have a lot of experience. Mm -hmm. And so to your question, yeah. and I realize I'm rambling, so I'll make this last part short and we can Please go, go for right it. Ahead. You no, need to do, <laughs> no need to ramble. In fact, the more information you can give here is the more you're going to impact what it is the listeners do with this information. So I appreciate this, by the way. Uh, and so what, what I think and that we can do, and actually this is something that we're working on now, that my colleagues and, and myself are working on now is developing kind of guides, workbooks, tools that are not just informative. Like we don't need to see more text. We need to see things that are kind of visually compelling, Actionable. easy graphics with really straightforward explanations about all the steps through the process. And so you know, like a guide for a citizen developer or a workbook for the citizen developer, I think mm -hmm. really needs to happen to enable this to achieve scale. So uh, someone we're working on, yeah. um, keep your ears peeled for, you know, maybe yeah. a year or two out and we'll have that to offer. A year or two? Well, like, you know, <laughs> things take time. I mean, like baby steps, we'll have something fun to share soon. But, uh, yeah. you know, like mm -hmm. I want to make sure that whatever we're putting out into mm -hmm. the world is, mm -hmm. is, is not just kind of compelling and all that stuff, but is, is you know, works with regulation um, can offer not just things that, that I or my colleagues want to see happen, but things that are feasible. And that takes time to, like, do it right. So maybe not two years, but, but no. some time anyway. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, that's a, we're getting a lot of those questions, uh, uh, you know, in-house. We're getting yeah. a lot of questions like, hey, Harm, uh, what is my property? Is the site going to work? Uh, how much is it going to cost to build? Do you guys do budgets? <laughs> like, um, like, how long will this take? Like, what are some of the nuances? So, you know, what we do on a, f on a few projects in different municipalities, including Toronto, of course, we do this sort of what we know we coin as suitable. Yeah, We've yeah, seen yeah. if the property can actually be converted into duplex, triplex, or fourplex. So what are some of the criteria that you think is really important for someone to look at on any one of the t housing typologies, right? No, that's a great point, actually. So... Um the sweet ability mm -hmm. um, of, a, of a home um, or the flexibility. Mm -hmm. um, as mentioned earlier, when talking about the different types really depends on the type. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Certain types are going to be easier to convert the interior into a triplex. Mm -hmm. Other types are going to be easier to make additions to. Um, and they're, they're, you know, they're based on a set of... Uh, uh, variables, frankly, a lot have to do with access and egress mm -hmm. um, and that sort of thing. So I don't know if I'm having a good answer for it. Just no, to say it, it really does depend on the type. And I think um, we're um, part of this guide that I was mentioned earlier that we're mm -hmm. working on is yeah. is actually trying to build a robust uh, kind of online system to allow people to evaluate their existing home to see what you know the options are for converting it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I think that's going to be really important if this multiplex zoning bylaw is to have the intended impact. 
but what is that intended impact? What do you think? Is you think this multiplex zoning bylaw is going to solve our housing crisis? Yes. Or? No, it's not going to solve the problem. <laughs> it's not. No, but I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. that's the thing is I, there's no several silver bullets. You hear mm-hmm. people say all the time, yeah. and I believe in that. You know, it's going to require. Mm-hmm. Different scales, different conditions, different types of housing happening across kind of a variety of markets and different, you know, and so I wouldn't, I would never, I think sometimes folks say, yes, we need to be focusing on creating multiplexes. Forget about condos. No, we're going to need condos. We're going to need multiplexes. We're going to need departments. We're going to need to rehab old departments. Actually, I'll put a a kind of shout out for that option. I feel like, you know, too often uh, some of our olding apartment and rental stock is left unattended, but don't want to yeah. get off off topic. Deferred maintenance. That's right. right. Too long. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, way too long. No, absolutely. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about your world, actually. Okay. This whole design, this urban design. <laughs> and I know you did, you made a distinction between urban design and urban planning. But, you know, what are some of the things that can be done on that side? Because policy is high level. How is it actionable now on, in the building department and how can they streamline those sort of processes? Um, I'm not sure if you know our audience is going to hear too much about what urban design is, but I'm going to maybe mention one thing that yeah. I regret about what my field of study has done with city building and then how I think we can do better. And that I hope will answer the question that you're asking. Yeah. In the past, urban design has um, contributed to what's called form-based regulations or form-based mm-hmm. zonings. Yes. So this is like, uh, you know, zoning envelopes or the, or the area within which someone can build a building. Mm-hmm. And over time, you know, we've tended to make that envelope more and more complex. There's steps, there's jogs, <laughs> and the more and more complex... planes. <laughs> angular planes to prevent shadow. Yeah, you need to make sure that we're nice to the neighborhood besides. <laughs> so, you know, all of these things that we've done to basically complicate the shape of a building have exacerbated the cost of construction. Mm-hmm. So the more complicated, the more stepped that we make and the more re- kind of returns and all that stuff, the more expensive it gets. And so what I'd like to do with, with urban design or what I think urban design should do alternatively mm-hmm. is foreground, how can we build more affordably and then look at our zoning code, look at our regulations that govern the shape of where, how, what a building can be and foreground affordability of construction. Like as a designer, I'm not going to be able to make, you know, something affordable. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. affordability has to do with incentives and loans and financing. It's way of beyond. Course. But what I can do and what we as designers can do, I think, is encourage more affordable construction, lower cost construction that then enables people to charge lower rents or, or lower prices for the product that they're selling or renting. Wow. Well, that's actually a really good segue into this piece because, you know, there's a lot of different alternate methods that are now popping up. Not that they were now invented, but they're now popping up. Like, so everyone has like all these different type of kits, panelized construction, modular construction. So do you think that has a place in pr- providing a solution, a rapid housing solution for this type of uh, multiplex zoning bylaw? I know you know that it, there's no kind of kit for converting <laughs> a home to a multiplex. You said it, not me. Uh, <laughs> so there's kits for doing yeah. garden suites, mm-hmm. right? Like yes. so a granny's flat or, or you know, and a detached ADU in your backyard. Yeah, you yeah. can plunk one down. Mm-hmm. Actually, not always. You need to have enough space to get it back there affordably, but I won't go there. Yeah. So, yeah, you can you can have a kind of prefabricated, <laughs> modular kind of 
or actually there's other techniques panelized for us, example, mm -hmm. that make kind of detached units possible. That's correct, yes. With multiplexes or with the conversion of an existing building, which offers vast economies based on the fact that you're not using new material, I think mm -hmm. that's a really important piece. That's right. But the diseconomy or the, the thing that makes it costly is that you have to deal with all kinds of junk that are inside an existing home. You know, mm -hmm. people that have added layers to their house, they've added a wall, they've <laughs> done this, they, you know, mm -hmm. maybe the ceilings drop. What about the electrical? There's wires all over the place. Yeah. And so in order to approach this, there's no kind of kit of parts, mm -hmm. but what there can be are systems, I think, mm -hmm. or their processes for systematizing the individual elements mm -hmm. that go into making a conversion. Like, mm -hmm. can we create a toolkit for a kitchen, right? Like, I know I can't do the whole floor plan. I know I can't take one of the standard types that's that we right. looked at and offer a, a floor plan that's gonna work everywhere. But what we could do is, is offer kind of standard kitchens you know, that enables folks to kind of like predict what the cost of, of a kind of a new kitchen. And that's not uncommon. That actually already mm -hmm. kind right. of happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's great. And in fact, I will I will say that there is um, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk around standardizing yeah. the, the process. I, I believe like you, there's a bigger opportunity or a, a larger, a, more, a higher likelihood of success for standardizing the design yeah. process versus standardizing the construction process. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you agree with me or you yeah, disagree? No, yeah? absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think it's not a, to your point, I think it's not gonna be about standardizing what gets built. Mm -hmm. um, although I do think there can, there's opportunity could be some for opportunity. that. There, yeah. there mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's greater opportunities for streamlining the design process. And the review process. And too. the design, well, I mean, yeah. I see like, especially mm -hmm. for BCIN folks, yeah. like, um, so let's say there's architects. A lot of what gets built is managed by people who have, uh, what does BCIN stand for? Building Code Insurance Number. <laughs> so no, but this yeah. is, these are the folks that are yeah. actually producing a lot yes. of our, that will be, I believe, producing a lot of our multiplexes. Yeah. And so a lot of that work has yeah. to do with getting a basic plan down, yeah. take it into the, the city to get approved so that you can go ahead and build. And the process, that process, I think could be, you know, vastly streamlined. So yeah. to the extent that there are, you know, maybe details that the city has pre-approved mm. that you can access as a BCIN, you know, That's correct. Um, these kinds of things that, that enable like designers to create these sets of drawings more efficiently and cost-effectively. Oh, absolutely. You know, over the six years of doing uh, duplexes, triplexes, and now fourplexes, we have um, in-house created our own standard sort of pool of details that we know we reutilize consistently and they show up on every drawing yeah. because this stuff doesn't need to be recreated but it could be standardized and i think more importantly the city needs to recognize a standardized set of drawings you may have seen or maybe know of this the tack buck mm -hmm. details mm -hmm. i think it's toronto association <laughs> of building officials or some, yeah. something like this, right? But they have that set of details that they use for building a house. That's right. In some cases, you can just take that as a homeowner and just give it to the yeah, city and say, right. this is Here what I'm is. building, I'm right? <laughs> because they have already approved that. That's they right. need to consider a very similar type of format when it comes to uh, multiplexes. You, you, so you agree, obviously, with yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I would say like that's something, that another area that I think can really see a huge amount of improvement. So in, in terms of efficiency, now, in terms of the ownership standpoint, like what are some of the models that we think we can, we can start exploring from an ownership standpoint when it comes to multiplexes? Because the reality is when you build these things, 
um, it costs money. Yeah. So how am I going to recoup some of this money? And uh, you know, can I sell these? What? How, how, what are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? I mean, actually, um, I'm a designer, so I could just talk about buildings and you know architecture all day. <laughs> But at the end of the day, mm -hmm. it's it's um, it's who's doing it and how they're doing it and the motivations for doing it. And mm -hmm. by doing it, I mean creating the, the multiplex, multiplex yes. mm -hmm. that ultimately drives a project. And until you as an individual understand what your motivations are, mm -hmm. then it's hard to make a decision about what you're going to make. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. let's to maybe give some specific examples. Yeah. Like. One example is, you know, I'm about to retire. I'm not going to have income coming in. I need to supplement my my um, retirement plan. That's so right. I create a couple of units in my home to rent out. Mm -hmm. Maybe I live in one or, or maybe I've moved into my garden suite. That's right. That idea about what you're trying to get out of the project drives actually what you build, not what you build, but the whole process for building it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I could go into a scenario but i'm gonna no i i like <laughs> that so you know the truth is like so what you just described there of course everyone knows it's asian in place and we of course some clients when they come to us we explain to them we you need to understand you're right we can't just jump into all well, your property you have a 200 foot by by 50 foot lot. like that's not the first step the first step is what what is the ultimate goal or end use of this property where do you see yourself in the next five years and that really starts to drive the conversation. Okay, well, let's try to phase this project out for you. Let's because these are expensive projects too, right? So let's let's hear about what are your thoughts on, on on the whole idea of aging in place and phasing these projects out. Phasing is my favorite word. I don't know why. <laughs> okay, good. But I mean, I I love thinking about homes and buildings not as a static, mm -hmm. you know, thing that you make. Mm -hmm but um, as something that changes and grows just like a family does. Mm -hmm. And the ability to think fluidly um, about your house or the housing that you're creating uh, for homeowners is key. Because, you know, you may have two kids living at home now, but in mm -hmm. 10 years they're going to be gone. So what are you going to do with those bedrooms? You know, yeah. what are you going to do with the basement that mm -hmm. your college student kid came back and lived in for a couple of years, but now they're gone? That's right. Yeah. You know, you're all so these right. kinds of things. So the idea of phasing, I think, is so important. And, and the thing that's fascinating to me about, fascinating. I, <laughs> it is fascinating. Out, right? out, so. <laughs> that's okay. Let's do that. Let's do it. <laughs> so the thing that's fascinating yeah. about this for folks looking that maybe homeowners or prospective homeowners that are looking to create units is if you think this way, mm -hmm. it actually makes it you know, more feasible and also a little bit more easy to digest. Like mm -hmm. maybe I can't afford to build three units mm -hmm. in my house today because mm -hmm. I only have 30,000 in the bank. That's right. You know, but maybe I can build one now. And then in five years, I can leverage my equity at that point to build a second. Mm. And maybe in 10 years, I build a garden suite that I move into and then rent the whole kit and caboodle out as three apartments. You know, like yes, yes. that's that's kind of thinking dynamically about property. That's and I right. think it's super important. I, I, I really like that point because you know what? We, we are obviously evolving and we're going through different stages in life. And if you have a property that can support you through each of those stages, that's really good. And that, that's kind of, you know, I, I, I'm going to ask this question here because I think it's, it's obviously important. But, you know, there, there are a few different groups or different strategies that could be implemented here. 
So for aging in place, you got someone that's moving moving away, or sorry, they, they're downsizing, they can age in place in the in neighborhood that they like mm -hmm. and still support their, their retirement income. Then you got the in the multi-generational type of family. Maybe you your 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 parent, your kids moved out, but now you can provide that sort of that sort of you know support from multi-generational type of uh, and family and mm. so forth. So we can all live in, in the same building, mm. right? So that's obviously the second part. And then you got like students, the students that are coming and looking for housing. I know we didn't really get into the housing no, policy no, no, no. and stuff like that, but th there's, there's another group of people there. But this is the thing, right? One of the things that I think needs to be talked about and a lot of people have questions about is how, what are some of the ownership models available, right? Because as you move through different stages, you may not necessarily want to own this entire thing. Is there a way that you can co-own? Is this some yeah. sort of co-ownership model? Like, well, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, the um, so uh, I'm a university professor. I have students. I have mm -hmm. graduate students mm -hmm. who are in their 30s. They finish school with a degree in architecture. They think they should be able to buy something within a few years after practicing for a while. And mm -hmm. I think they should. Like, when you spend that much money... On your city, yeah. yeah, and so they can't. They move out of Toronto, and mm -hmm. it's happening a mm -hmm. lot. Like we're losing, you know. I'm, I mean, I, I don't know what the stats are. I'm just thinking about my the anecdotes I know. But we're yeah. losing, mm -hmm. you know, important people in our in our city mm -hmm. to other places that are offering more affordable options. So, That's right. to your question, mm -hmm. I think that co ownership offers an opportunity for, uh, you know, a group of younger folks mm -hmm. to co purchase a home. And to build up equity uh, in doing so, and then maybe they go out on their own, or, or maybe they love living in a kind of co-ownership situation, and they stay there, mm -hmm. you know, for long term. And no. so mm -hmm. this opens up a whole other kind of series yeah. of issues that That's are correct, much yeah. more complicated than owning and renting. That's right. But really important to dig into. There's there's a group in the city, or sorry, let. Um, uh, an organization uh, of realtors that um, they have a platform um, called Hustmates, which y'all should check out. It's yeah, mm -hmm. basically pairs up young folks to co-purchase a home, um, and they offer a lot of advice around, you know, what you need to do in order to to not just purchase but to endure over time with co-owners in a small lot like this. That's right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, like a, it's almost like a counselor. <laughs> like you, need a counselor. Counselor. you need to get counseling. You need a counselor yeah. to do that because even when you're matching tennis, I think is, is really, this is really oh, important. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of operational stuff that, that, that we can get into. I mean, obviously, this has been a great conversation here. We can go on for, for really hours just talking about this sort of stuff. But what it is I want to sort of kind of dive into here now as we start to wrap this conversation up is, you know, some, some questions related to, you know, who like who you are what does you enjoy doing outside of your professor type responsibilities so tell me what give me three books three resources three things that you three books that you read or three movies that you look at on a frequent basis oh Could man you know one what? book two movies however you want to break it up okay i'll yeah. try I'll do my best mm -hmm. it's actually in the past couple of years since I've started doing this work, yeah. my hobbies outside of academia yeah. have actually turned to making stuff. So I've started building a lot. Like okay. 
So I, I did my own basement suite renovation. I framed all the walls. I built all the cabinets. Wow. It's just to say, like, I, maybe it's embarrassing for my academic colleagues. Hopefully you're not watching. But, like, I don't actually read too much anymore because I've been so busy building stuff. Yeah, no, yeah. but, let, you know, um, let's see. Uh, so my biggest things outside of, of work are, are making things and biking across a city. I love exploring it. So that's how I spend most of my time when I'm not working. What kind of bike? Like, so there's, yeah. there's a lot of – so I, I actually had this guy went to a project – and this guy rolled up on like a uni, yeah. a motor unicycle oh, thing. Like, what, what do you, what do yeah. you, how, like, what do you use for 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 getting around the city? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a bike, <laughs> a regular you know, bike, a bike that has yeah, wheels bicycle. and you pedal it and it moves. <laughs> no, but like, it's fascinating because yeah. there's this whole range of like stuff in between a bike and a motorcycle now. Like yeah. the uni wheel, the uh, that's kind of. It's crazy Mopeds, exciting. scooters, like everything. Every, every, everything is, in fact, by, there's no more bicycles. Everything is motorized I now, know. right? That's why I have a bike, because I think it's important <laughs> for us to still use our legs. No, I mean, I, I like all this stuff, but I mean, I'll just say one thing that actually we, we haven't talked about with mm -hmm. regards to housing that this relates to is like, we can't create density unless there's ways for people to get around and unless everyone's going to be having mm. a car, things like these are actually super important. I didn't mean to bring it back to the serious conversation. But no, but no, felt. absolutely. But, but this is, but this is also part of it because, um, as the communities become more vibrant, yeah. you know, you can't have room for that many cars. Um, so, and honestly speaking, if there's more housing in the city, there's not a lot of need to commute to the city because yeah. people are going to be living there and working there and playing there. So um, the, I think you, you might see some change, maybe not in the near future, maybe 100 years from now, but maybe vehicle and traffic and stuff yeah. might be a thing of the past. Yeah, right? we hope. We hope. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're hoping. So what are three resources? Three resources okay. that people can, that you you tap into. Obviously, you do have done, you have created some of these resources. Oh, so the let's hear about those first. Rehousing.ca, yeah. yeah. that's the number one resource. No, yeah. I mean, that's a plug. But yeah, sure. Um, I spend a lot of time, actually, we've been researching uh, um, guidebooks um, from different municipalities in Canada and, and, and Canada and the U.S. Um, about creating basement suites and garden suites and multiplexes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think of the best one. Oh, shoot. It's for uh, San Mateo in California. Super rigorous kind of guidebook. And so we're actually kind of taking some cues from that. Mm -hmm. Bonn actually has a really good guidebook about how to, to create, I think, second suites. Yeah. Really methodical. The graphics have a little the desire. But, you know, yeah. like the content <laughs> is, 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 is kind of, you know, right there. Um, so I don't know. I spend a lot of time kind of looking at these tools, partially to kind of learn how they work, because I think we need to make you know we need to make some for the GTA. So that's absolutely that's how I spend a lot of my time. Well, you guys heard it. I mean, obviously, you definitely need to check with your local municipalities. Oftentimes, they have a lot of great resources there. But be sure to check out rehousing, and of course, this new guide that. Uh, Michael is working on, and I believe this will also be in collaboration with the, with the city of Toronto as well. City, yeah. So, um, well, we're meeting with them soon to mm -hmm. kind of talk about how, um, when we make this guide, it can complement whatever they're doing. So, not in collaboration. They mm -hmm. haven't kind of put their stamp on it. Got you. But uh, the goal, and fortunately, by working with them before, I think we've got an opportunity to continue with this uh, next phase. So, well, yeah. That's great. My final question to you, my friend. You live in Toronto now, yeah. but you're, you're, you're studying in the U.S. Yeah. Um, which, which is your favorite city? 
Toronto, Toronto. Oh, city Toronto. oh yeah come on yeah. Don, Don. okay I got you yeah, I got your recording totally. yeah <laughs> I mean so like I lived all over the states and I yeah. lived in Europe and like the Middle okay, East okay and Toronto is the in Toronto and yeah. I'll tell you why it's like mm-hmm. actually before I came here I was in New York and before New York I was in Los Angeles you know like the coolest cities in the states or yeah. whatever but the thing is is like New York is cooked Chicago's cooked LA is cooked like the only places that are still getting built are like Toronto and Atlanta and Phoenix and Phoenix is running out of water Atlanta's where I'm from it's a great place but like I don't know like it it's a little too kind of cowboy for me the thing that's amazing about Toronto is that it's gilding getting built now and Mm -hmm. for better or worse and sometimes frankly for worse there's a lot of kind of uh effort to to structure that growth and it means there's opportunities for people like me to kind mm-hmm. of engage mm-hmm. those structures the policies and all that stuff so as a someone who's working in kind of city making it's the most exciting place in north america to be nice the city maker michael piper and he is actually the director of master master program master master, master urban design at the university of toronto a school working with the school of cities now if you guys need to get in contact with michael what is the best way someone can shoot you a question if they needed to is it linkedin is it your website like what, what, what i would go got? to rehousing.ca and mm-hmm. there is an email at the end and you yeah. can it's info at rehousing mm-hmm. um or I hate to say Google me, but you know my <laughs> my my page at the U of T is the first thing that pops up, and my email my 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 U of T emails there. So uh, I'm I should be better at social media, but I'm I'm not. So well, this has been a great conversation with Michael. I certainly had a lot of learning tim- tips that I got from this conversation, and I invite you to subscribe to our podcast and check out our social media handles and be sure to listen to this episode and other future episodes on Ontario Sweet Spots. Catch you guys soon. Thank you, Michael. Thank you.